We are in week five of our series, The Amazing Miracles of Jesus. And uh, we have already seen some incredible miracles as we've studied uh, his life and his ministry on here on earth. And we've discovered that he has the power to provide through looking at the miracle of the catch of fish. Uh, we saw his power to deliver, didn't we, as we looked at the Jesus setting free a man that had a legion of demons. Uh, we learned that Jesus has the power to heal as we looked with the woman with the bleeding issue and how she reached out and touched him and was completely healed. And uh, last week we talked about what? How a uh, power to transform. Thank you for uh, the Lord for that reminder. Uh, the power to transform as we looked at Jesus doing what? Changing water into wine. That's right. And so tonight we are prepared to look at one more important miracle. Next week will be the culminating week as we look at the power over death, hell, and the grave. Amen? On Resurrection Weekend. So I want to read to you from John chapter 8, the text for tonight. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 8, verse 1 through 11. This is the story of the woman caught in adultery. And after I read the text, we're going to see another uh, brief video introduction that shows a, a video version of this text that I'm reading to you. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and he taught them. But as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. And they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and he said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful miracle that we see in your life, the miracle of forgiveness. Tonight, as we share from this story, Holy Spirit, come and be our teacher. Open up our minds, our hearts to new insights, and most importantly, remind us and impress us with your incredible grace, love, mercy, and your power to forgive. In Jesus' name, amen. In this story that the scene represented and that we read from John chapter 8, you'll see that there are three primary characters. There's number one, there's the woman. Number two, 
There are the Pharisees or the religious leaders that gathered. And then number three, there's Jesus. Now most likely, all of us are present somewhere in this service. Don't know whether you frequently try to connect with the characters as we read them in biblical narratives, but you may be the woman. You may feel condemned by others. You may feel tonight that you are in great need of forgiveness. Or you may be able to identify with the Pharisees in some way. Maybe you have found yourself feeling more self-righteous than you should. Maybe you have been judging others, but possibly blinded to your own need. But hopefully tonight, as we share from this story, you will determine to recognize the need to be like Jesus. The one who offered forgiveness when no one else would. The one who freely forgave and released this woman. Even when condemnation was legally justified. So let's briefly, before we get into the practical lessons that we glean from this important story, let's just identify these three characters and talk about them. First of all is the woman. First of all, by the way, there's no uh, agreement on exactly who this woman was. Many believe that she was Mary Magdalene. But there's no definite proof of what her name was and who she was. All that's really important for the sake of tonight's lesson is that we realize that she was a woman that had been committing the sin of adultery. She was a woman that had been caught in the act. And of course, the religious laws were clear. And the Mosaic law was clear that adultery was a sin. And apparently this is a woman that it wasn't her first time committing adultery. And so they grabbed her, they brought her literally in, in the clothing that she had on and dragged her in front of the crowds that had been gathered. You have to kind of remember the scene and the, the moment because this is taking place still at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so what happens during feast times? Thousands and thousands of Jews and outsiders have gathered around and they've come together for celebrating the feast. So just think of the timing of this. Think of the level of embarrassment that this lady must have felt, even though completely a sinful adulterer. But placed her, the scripture says, they caught her in the act and they came and they placed her in front of the crowd. There's nothing worse than your sin being in front of the crowd. Y'all know what I'm talking about? To have your wrongdoing, to have your failures, to have your weaknesses all of a sudden platformed and profiled for other people to see. I think as much as anything, she had to feel shame, don't you think? The embarrassment and the shame that she must have felt of, of not only what she knew that was wrong, but then everyone else looking at her, eyes piercing at her with judgment. She was being condemned by even the religious Jewish leaders of the day. As they brought her before Jesus, there was no one, there was literally no one who was standing between her and guaranteed death by stoning. It might be helpful for you to know and to remember that in this particular day, According to Mosaic law, the adulterers, there was already a sentence. 
It wasn't something for the judges to sit and say, let's see, what, this is your crime. What kind of a penalty are we going to give you? The penalty for adultery was already established in the Mosaic law. Guess what it was? Death. The death penalty was guaranteed. Actually, adultery was considered the same level of crime as murder or kidnapping or witchcraft. All of those were to be stoned and put to death. You know what I've discovered? You don't usually have to convince people that they're sinners. Most people, I know there's a few people who are in total denial that they're in need of forgiveness. Do you know what I'm saying? But most people, you don't have to try to convince them and condemn them and beat them up about their sin. Most people know when they've screwed up. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And so the, I, I don't think this lady needed to be convinced. You're a sinner. You've done wrong. This is wrong. I think she knew that she was wrong. So here she is, standing before her accusers. One interesting side note that you might notice by reading this. There's no mention of the man. No mention of the man at all. Apparently, he hasn't been brought before the group for stoning. We're not told anything. There's no mention of it, but it's pretty obvious. It takes two to tango. Someone say amen. All right, so, <laughs> so my point is, is that there was some level of unfairness about this whole thing all in all. She, I'm sure in her mind, she's thinking, what about Mr. Smith, you know? But she didn't have any choice. She's there. She's ashamed. She's, she's fearful. Has to be fearful because guess what? The people standing around her had rocks in their hands. Stones in their hands ready to enact the judgment that was guaranteed. The second group that I mentioned to you that maybe you can identify with, hopefully you're not, but sometimes we end up in these shoes, are the Pharisees. We all know that these religious leaders, this was the group of the, the politically powerful group with influence among the Jews. And they were the ones that were trying to trap Jesus. In fact, in this particular occasion, even though the, the video didn't show it, apparently they had interrupted Jesus while he was teaching. So he had gone back to the temple area in order to continue teaching. And so they interrupted his teaching, and the religious leaders, those, uh, those Pharisees, came, interrupted him, said, uh, excuse us, Jesus, we've got a situation here. We've got to take care of this woman. And what motivated them to do that? They were clearly trying to position Jesus in a way that he couldn't escape. They were trying to catch him, trap him, to where he was going to get in trouble. Their aim was to put him in a, in a sticky situation. Actually, the woman, the adultering, uh, 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 the woman who was guilty of adultery was just a pawn in this game of trying to entrap Jesus. Why was, why was it such a trap? Because they basically gave Jesus two choices. On one hand, if he was to say that, no, we shouldn't stone her, we should forgive her, he would be doing what? He'd be violating Jewish law. See? And therefore, he'd be found guilty of blasphemy, guaranteed to be in, in, bad, in, in, in bad hot water with the religious authorities. 
On the other hand, who could follow him if he was breaking the, breaking the law? But on the other hand, if he were to say, yes, she deserves to be stoned, and picked up a stone and helped to stone he would have been guilty before the Romans because the law of that time was that only the Romans could enact this kind of a death penalty. And so it was a temptation. It was a trap. That's what religious people do, by the way. Always trying to trap, always trying to juxtapose, and that's what this was called to do. However, Jesus turned the tables on them. I just, if, I think is as much a fascinating thing to watch about the life of Jesus is his wisdom in dealing with the Pharisees. I just love it. I love how he can take and turn what looks to be, uh-oh, no way out of this one, and next thing you know, he somehow finds the, the wisdom as the Son of God. He uses the wisdom of heaven to get out of a situation, and once again, he did, didn't he? What did he do? He actually showed them their own sins now there's great discussion uh, you saw in the video and you read maybe uh, as I was reading the text this interesting mysterious little part of the story where it talks about Jesus drawing in the dust on the ground in fact it mentions it twice he's doing something doing something in the in the dirt and uh, at first, it might seem like he, he might just have been trying to ignore them, or he might have just been doing something else, just drawing pictures, just kind of kind of like you might just be doing like my students do when I teach at school. They're just doodling, doodling, or doing something. To, you know. So maybe Jesus was doodling in the ground. Just but then later, it tells us what? It says, once again, he begins to write something with his finger. Listen to what it says says, all right, but let the one who never has sinned throw the first stone. And then it says, then he stooped down again and began to write in the dust. That, that description there, I think, is telling. Because obviously it brings the question, what happened to make these religious people disappear, to throw down their stones? What made them give up so quickly on their objective to stone this woman my opinion and it's not a new opinion but my personal opinion is that he was writing down in dust the sins that each of them were guilty i believe he is specifically writing down and as he wrote them down all of a sudden it's just like realizing oh, oh someone found me out I mean, a lot of sins are kept in secret. They're kept in hiding. Adultery, this one obviously wasn't able to be kept in private. But, but the sins that these men were guilty of, maybe they had thought that they were getting away with it, but Jesus is writing them right there in front of them. And one by one, stones in hand, they begin to say, uh-oh, they drop the stone and begin to walk away. I don't think their walking away was a change of heart. I don't think their walking away was a realization that Jesus was right. I don't think their walking away was any, any all of a sudden they were converted to a, to, a, to a heart of love and mercy and a tenderness towards this woman. No, I think they were simply embarrassed themselves. The third primary character of the story, of course, is Jesus Christ. 
I hope that you will choose to identify with him. What do we find about him? Well, first of all, he was very in tune with the risks that were presented by the Pharisees. He was able to, with the wisdom of God, work his way through it. But also what's so important is I want you to see that his greatest concern was for that woman. Such compassion we see in this story. His concern for this woman, what she must have felt. The good news is that Jesus identifies with people's needs. Amen? He feels their pain. He knew what she was going through. He wanted to minister to her deepest need. Full of mercy. Jesus was the model of mercy. He was the model of love and compassion. And he demonstrated it in this story. Now what I want to do is share with you seven lessons. I'll do this very quickly. But I think that there's seven important lessons that you and I can glean from this that affect your life and my life. These are principles, lessons, and insights that I think this story clearly illustrates. The first one, number one, religion is never a good answer for addressing someone in need. Religion is never a good answer for addressing someone in need. When I use the word religion, I'm talking about that form, uh, that form and substance of religious acts of people attempting to be uh, godly, for people who are acting religious, who are not the kind, I'm not speaking of religion as it would speak to our personal walk of Christianity, but I'm talking about religious verse, religion versus a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Because religious people, they usually don't have a lot of mercy. Do you agree with that? It, it, they're about rules, and they're about regulations, and they're about can we check off the boxes and a list of do's and don'ts. Listen, people who are exposed to and, and suffer at the hands of religious people usually either live lives that are under the bondage of legalism or... They are simply shunned and pushed away. Religion is never inviting. Religion is never something that focuses on people's innermost needs. It's never a good answer for addressing someone in need. But the good news is that a relationship with Jesus Christ, and when, when Jesus can come and get in connection with someone, and we can help people realize that your answer is not religion. Your answer is not church. Your answer is not is not full complete obedience to a list of do's and don'ts your answer isn't that at all the answer is come into a relationship with jesus christ and you'll sense the forgiveness and the love that you're desperately looking for what do you think this woman was primarily looking she's looking for love she was love but as the song says in all the wrong places right she was looking for love hungry for love looking for acceptance what she didn't know is that only God through his son Jesus in this case could offer her the love that she was so desperate for the second lesson I want you to get from this story is that those without sin are not in a position I meant to, that that's supposed to say those with sin. I apologize. Those with sin are, are not in a position to condemn others. In other words, as sinners, all of us are sinners. Amen? Romans 6, Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned. All. Everybody say all. 
all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages, the payment, the, 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 the cost of sin is what? It's death. If there's sin, someone has to die. When you are in sin and you're born a sinner, we've all been born sinners, we are never in a position to condemn someone else for their wrong. And that's what's going on here. Here you have people who are clearly sinners. Listen, religious pride is just as bad of a sin as adultery. Religious pride sent Jesus to the cross in the same way that murder did. Sin is sin. And whenever you get to the point of trying to, to organize sin into a list of, oh, these are the real serious ones and these are not so serious, and these you really don't have to worry about, I think you're headed for trouble right there. Because all of them require the forgiveness of God. All of them could put Jesus to death. Amen? And all of them stain the life of humanity. And so those with sin are never in a position to condemn other people. Um, I think the very fact that Jesus was pointing out their sins, based on my theory, on the ground, convicted them enough, shamed them enough to cause them for the crowd to disperse. The Bible makes it clear in the Sermon on the Mount, we need to be really careful who we point fingers at. We need to be really careful who we pass judgment on. I think many times as, as, as contemporary believers today, I think we do it way too often. I think we look at people, we don't know what they're going through. We don't know what that kind of their background is. We don't know what circumstances they've been. And we quickly make judgments about them, don't we? It might be the homeless person on the street that you draw conclusions about. It might be the person who is standing in the welfare line or who, who's using food stamps at the grocery store and immediately you might draw a conclusion about them that's judgmental. Or maybe it's even the person that you work with and, and, and based upon what they say or don't say, you somehow become judgmental about them. I think we really have to be careful that we, that we not try to remove, as Jesus said, the speck out of someone else's eye when we have what? We have this big old log in our eye. I heard it said many, many years ago, a statement that I think is so, so true. It says, we, when we look at other people, we judge other people, we expect uh, a high standard. We expect achievement. So we judge them based upon what they do and how they achieve. But when we judge ourselves, we judge ourselves on our good intentions. It's true, isn't it? Well, I didn't, I didn't mean that. Well, I wouldn't have meant to do that. We have to be really careful when we start condemning other people. The third lesson I want you to get is that his forgiveness is not based on our innocence. Oh, I'm so thankful. That his forgiveness is not based on innocence. God's forgiveness. Yes, she was caught in the act. She was not innocent. In fact, she was guilty. They had evidence, evidence. <laughs> She'd been caught in the act. But his forgiveness had nothing to do with her innocence or her guilt. His forgiveness was based upon his character. Aren't you glad that God's forgiveness for mankind is not based on whether we deserve it or not? 
Amen. It is the very mark of forgiveness that it flows out of grace. And grace is uncon- it, it, it's undeserved. You can't pay the price to deserve the forgiveness of Christ. No one can. Her sin, it was real. She wasn't innocent. She was guilty as charged. The fourth lesson I want you to get is that his forgiveness is not based on the severity of the sin. His forgiveness is not based on the severity of the sin. This lady's sin deserved the death penalty. <coughs> this isn't some minor little sin. Deserved the death penalty. She didn't need to be convinced of it. She knew. Do you think she would have been surprised to realize that her sin of adultery was going to get the death penalty? No. She was likely very aware of it. But the severity of her sin didn't change his forgiveness. Her sin deserved death. But Jesus' forgiveness covers all sin. No matter how great, no matter how small, no matter how ugly it is, no matter how dark your shame is, no matter how much embarrassment people subject you to, what we need to see is that Jesus is ready to forgive us. Number five, so important. He cares about you and me as people. He's most concerned about people. Aren't you glad that he's a people lover? Huh? Aren't you? When you, when you picture this story, you can see the heart of Jesus that is primarily being motivated towards her. He wanted to help her out of her pain. He wanted to help her out of her sense of shame. He was concerned about her as a person. We need to be reminded, and hopefully we are conveyors of this kind of a message to other people, is that God's concerned about you. He's not concerned about how people dress. He's concerned about our hearts. He's concerned about our needs more than he is uh, 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 what your annual salary is. He's concerned about people and their deepest needs. This is an example in John chapter 8 of the care that Jesus has. You know, the scripture tells us, beautiful scripture in the Old Testament that prophesies the Messiah. It says that when the Messiah comes, it says a smoldering wick he will not smother out. It was speaking of the, of the, of the wicks that were in the temple that were, that were providing light, that were dependent on the oil as the oil would come up and they would, and they would burn and smoke would come off. And it was the idea that you, it, Jesus will not come and put out that smoking wick, smoldering wick. Why? He's gentle. He's caring goes on to say and a bruised reed he will not break it's a beautiful scripture a bruised reed speaking of the reeds that would grow by the marshes and by the water and sometimes that bruised reed you know it doesn't take much and and it's just bent over and kind of been it's kind of been damaged but it's saying a bruised reed he will not break in other words he won't go ahead and just you know ruthlessly just go ahead and break it off why it's picturing how he ministers to people We're bruised people. We have bruises. But I want you to know, 
He's interested in healing your bruise, not breaking you. He's not interested in saying, well, you're just, you're just kind of barely smoking anyway. You're not putting out a lot of light, so we'll just, just put that out. Oh, no, no, no. He's a caring, gentle, loving, compassionate God. Number six, Jesus never compromises truth. He never compromises truth. Did you notice that in this particular story, he didn't say she was innocent? He never, he never said that she was, he never declared innocence over her. What did he do? He simply acquitted her. He simply forgave her. This was not an issue of right and wrong. But notice what he did. He blended, as only God can do so beautifully, he blended mercy and truth. The Old Testament says, truth and mercy have kissed. They've married. In other words, truth and mercy represent two opposites. There's the truth that's like, this is what's right. This is what's wrong. This is what God says. On the other hand, mercy says, okay, it's all right. Just love you, forgive you. So how can those things ever wed? That'd be some wild marriage, wouldn't it? Huh? Some of you have those kinds of marriages. You know what I'm talking about. Truth and mercy have kissed. Got married. In other words, truth and mercy, those two extreme polar opposites have come together and are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's the perfect mix. He's all about truth. And he'll never compromise the truth. And he'll never say, oh, it's okay, that's really not wrong. In your case, I'm gonna it's really not wrong. He didn't say that to her. What did he say? You're forgiven. Go and sin no more. Do you see the blend? There's forgiveness, but then he asked her to repent. Change. The perfect blend of mercy, but truth. He never compromises truth. You know, when we're wrong, we're wrong. We need to live lives motivated by love, compelled by the desire to only please God. We don't want to hurt him. We, we want to we live for him. Why? Because he died for us. That's what ought to motivate us. When you really understand the grace and the love and the compassion of God, it will motivate you to run from sin. It will motivate you to, to be loosed from those shameful habits. You won't want to do those things, not because it's wrong, but because you're motivated by love. You understand that? Jesus never will compromise truth. He never said, oh, you know, it's okay. I'm sure you really didn't mean it. He didn't say that. He simply said what? Where are the people who are condemning you? Where are they now? Everyone's gone. No one's here to condemn you. And he said what? I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to give you life. But the balance, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Wow. What an incredible, complex, incredible, but wonderful representation we have. 
He never compromises truth. He brings mercy, but also a mandate. He never merely excuses sin, but he always provides us a way out. You know what the way out of every situation is? A repentant heart, a changed mind. Simply go, don't keep doing this. The last thing, and I've really just kind of already crossed over into it, but I'll leave you with this last one. His desire is to heal me, not condemn me. His whole motivation for this miracle that we see in John chapter 8 was not to condemn this lady. It wasn't about condemnation. It wasn't about getting her uh, to understand the, the, the specifics of the law. Now, don't you? Notice he didn't sit down and say, now let, let's go back and read the text. Here's what Deuteronomy says. He didn't do that, did he? He was all about what? He wanted to restore her. He wanted to heal her. He knew her innermost need. This is the power of forgiveness. This ought to make us fall in love with Jesus all the more as we see this. He's not interested in condemning you. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And I'll leave you with one last scripture. John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And you know 16 because you memorize it in Sunday school. But you may not realize what 17 says. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. So that whosoever would believe in him could be saved. It goes on to say what? He did not come into the world to condemn the world. To put a trip on the world. To put a heavy load on the world. He came to forgive, to heal, and to restore. He comes not to condemn. His desire is to heal. I want to ask you in closing tonight. Can I go back to the three characters of the story? Who can you identify with tonight? Maybe there's a part of us tonight that can identify with a woman. because Maybe there's something in our life that frankly... Uh, maybe it's one of those things that Jesus would have scribbled in the sand. Or maybe it's something that has been exposed. We need his forgiveness. We need his mercy. Or maybe, unfortunately, maybe there's a part of us tonight that can say, I think I fall into the trap of acting Pharisee-like. I've acted more religious than I have Christ-like. I need to be careful not to be so judgmental and condemning of others. I need to remember that, as the saying says, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Do you love sinners? Do you love homosexuals? Do you love people who have practiced sin all their lives? Do you love that teenager who's robbing from the store? Do you love the bureaucrat? Do you love the unfair employer? It's all about love. It's all about mercy and forgiveness. I hope tonight that you'll say, I want to identify with Jesus. He's the one. That same Jesus who went to the woman, he guarded her. 
protected her from being stoned to death that day. And at the end of the day, gave her a second chance. I want to leave you with this thought. God is always the God of second chances. Now, I happen to be on my hundred and second. But he's always the God of the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth chance and so on and so on. It's simply God's love and grace. Amen? Would you stand with me tonight? I just want to pray over you tonight. Can we tonight celebrate Jesus as a forgiving Savior? Amen? A forgiving Savior. He's got power to forgive. Some of you might wonder, I I don't know if I really think that this qualifies as a miracle, amazing miracle of Jesus. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Forgiveness is just as incredible, just as amazing as healing or deliverance or turning water into wine. Can we celebrate that tonight? Maybe right now as I pray. Maybe some of you are feeling condemned. Maybe you're condemning yourself or maybe other people are pointing fingers. But I want you just to picture yourself right now with Jesus. Wrapping his arms around you and saying, I forgive you. Just go and sin no more. Go make a practice of this. Just stop it. Turn around. Change your mind. Would you right now just pray with me? Lord Jesus, tonight we're so thankful that you have modeled for us in this great story. You've modeled for us the kind of Savior that can do nothing but fall in love with. Thank you, Jesus, for covering this woman, her shame, her wrong. And thank you that the same forgiveness that you paid for 2,000 years ago as you went to the cross for us that we celebrate on Good Friday. Lord, thankful that that same forgiveness is poured out for us today. Lord, we ask you to deliver us and to forgive us for being too religious-like, too much like those Pharisees. Forgive us for finger-pointing. Forgive us for self infliction of judgment on ourselves or on others and tonight we choose to accept the fact that you're not condemning us but you do want to restore us we receive your mercy tonight some of you just need to receive it right now say lord thank you for mercy thank you for forgiveness in my life and lord tonight we also determine to walk away from those sinful habits and patterns we decide to go to not sin anymore thank you for the miracle of forgiveness that's renewed even tonight for us in jesus name we pray amen amen praise god do you love jesus hopefully you love him a little bit more god bless you have a great weekend Remember the two important things next Saturday. See you then. God bless.